Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the word to our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray. Amen. A New Testament reading from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, beginning with verse 14. The word of the Lord. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not recounting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. It was a uh, posh wedding at a high-class St. Louis country club. I was the officiant. I barely knew the couple, but they had asked me to do their wedding. I agreed to do their wedding. Behind me was a wall of glass be- with o- overlooking these beautifully, perfectly sculpted, manicured lawns. It was wonderful, and I started my homily and by 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 you know thanking everybody for coming to the the wedding of of the bride, and then I used the best man's name, and uh, and it went downhill from there. Then there was the bridesmaid who obviously didn't know about not locking your knees, and you know you watch that the tower goes back and forth and back and forth and nobody's doing anything and then back and no more forth. Uh, then there was the couple who went to cut their wedding cake and evidently underneath the wedding cake in this beautiful, you know, flowy, you know, you know, tablecloth was a, a flimsy uh, uh, um, little card table and as soon as the cutter went down into the cake, the whole thing just crumpled over. Then there was the time that I did the wedding and I held out the Bible, uh, you know, asked if somebody have the ring for the ring ceremony. They put the ring here and it went right down these stairs and down the aisle and somebody had to go fetch it. But uh, that was nothing compared to the, Nova Scotia, the, the couple in Nova Scotia who uh, were starting their wedding when uniformed police officers arrived and let them know that the building they were in was on fire. The entire thing burned to the ground, maybe one too many tea light, don't you think? And then there was the one I saw on YouTube where the brother of the bride was walking the bride on his shoulders 
across a fountain to her waiting groom when he slipped and they both fell and the groom fell and it was everybody got a big splash. And then there was the one where at the reception, oh, this one's good, uh, tragic, Uh, at the reception, (laughs) the bride, probably six foot two, wearing six-inch stiletto heels, was descending down a tight little spiral staircase, making her grand entrance while the DJ announced her and everybody applauded, and that stiletto heel got caught in a rung of the stairs, and she crumpled all the way down. She got there really fast, guys. It was it was terrible. And then there's the tossing of the bouquet, where the over-eager young woman dove to get the bouquet. She got it, but she also face-planted on the dance floor. So many bouquet disasters, and we're not even getting to garters today. That's just, that's crossing a line. But my favorite was uh, was the wedding party photo op, where they all lined up on this beautiful uh old wooden dock that jutted out into a lake and it was a beautiful old wooden dock and as soon as they all lined up it was it was tuxes and taffeta lots of pink taffeta the whole thing just crumpled beneath them and they all took a bath it was time for a swim weddings are those times friends when we put on our best faces. Our families are on display to show our very best, to show what kind of party we can afford to put on. There are times when we display also, when they go badly, our greatest shame. And Jesus, interestingly, does his very first miracle recorded in John's gospel, his very first sign, because these miracles are always pointing to something he's going to do that's bigger than the miracle itself. He did his first sign at a wedding that was going very, very, very badly. This is John chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. You can follow along with me. The account of the first sign of Jesus. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. You could do the math. That's like 180 gallons. That's like, that's like 800 bottles. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told to them, now, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, the two-buck jug, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until last. What do we see here? What we see is the truth that the wine 
always runs out. What do we know about this family? First thing we know, they're relatives of Mary. Why? Because Mary's in the kitchen. Mary is taking charge. This is her relatives. What we also know is that they were desperately poor because they ran out of wine. This was a major faux pas. You know, in a, in a, in a, in a wedding in first century Palestine, they were multi-day affairs where the entire village would come out because the entire village were all of your relatives. Probably other relatives from the next village over or the next village the other direction would come. Anybody who moved to the city would come. Everybody would come for a multi-day celebration and you were legally obligated to provide enough wine for all of your guests throughout the entire course of the celebration. You could get sued for running out of wine. This was a big deal. And the wine, it runs out. It means they were poor. They couldn't afford enough wine. And they were about to face a major shame where all of their relatives, all of their neighbors, all of the people who know them, all of their business contacts, all of the people in government, all of the clergy, all of the good, the respectable, the good, the the whole world was about to see this family is pretending to be something they're not. They're they're poor, and that would cause great shame. The wine runs out, and the wine always runs out in this life. This is about more than just wine. This is Jesus' first sign, his first miracle. The wine runs out in your marriage when you wake up next to your spouse and you think, oh, you're still here. You know, when you find... When you find yourself, you have this great vision of this beautiful relationship swept off your feet, traveling, you are feeling tingly the rest of your life, and instead you're tiptoeing over your spouse's stinky underwear. Uh, you know, the, the party is over at that point. You think the run, wine has run out. This is not what I signed up for. With your children, you have this little tiny baby that's just so beautiful and dependent on you, and then they're a teenager, and they're telling you that they hate you and they wish you were dead. The wine always runs out. When you realize that you're alone and you're spending so much of your time and energy just figuring out how to manage your loneliness, the the, the wine runs out in your career when your boss calls you in at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and and there's a security guard nearby with an empty cardboard box and you know your career is 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 heading downhill fast. Yeah, the, the wine runs out when when you you know you you're born and 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 you fill up some diapers and then you learn some things and you learn to walk and you learn you do some school and you do some more school if you're really crazy you do more school and more school and more school uh, that's why they call it a terminal degree because that's what it does to you uh but but and then, and then you get a job and then you and then you retire and and then and, and at some point it happens at some point you realize you have crested the hill and you're growing old mentally the wine runs out when 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 a mental illness is your constant companion and you realize it's probably never going to go away in this life. Spiritually, the wine runs out when you realize that you are nowhere near as close to God as you were 20 years ago. You don't read his word. You don't really pray. You go to church, but you do it as a formality. Inside, you feel cold and distant from God because the wine, it's run out. And then finally, a doctor at some point tells you that what you have is terminal. And you know that you're in the very last chapter, perhaps the last page of your book. Where is the wine running out, friends, in your life right now? Where are you experiencing the emptiness? Where are you feeling the loss? Where are you feeling hollow? 
Where are you feeling the disappointment of life in a fallen world? Where are things not living up to the promise of where you thought they would be? It always runs out. And this is not a uniquely Christian problem. This is a universal human experience that every one of us has to deal with in this life, no matter what your perspective, no matter what your religion, no matter what your background, no matter what philosophy guides you. And so the question you raise, Greg, why would God make a world like this? A world that has so much promise and yet does not and will not deliver. And biblically, the answer is that God didn't make a world like this. The world is fallen. Within the Christian narrative, you you look those early pages of Scripture, tell a story of a world that was meant to be a certain way, and and, and we walked with God in knowledge and and holiness and righteousness, living designed to live forever in perfect love, naked and feeling no shame. Everything was, was, was right. The world was filled with blessing. And then those first parents of ours turned their back on God and chose to live independent of him. And, and it's what, what we call the fall. And then they were expelled from the garden, expelled from paradise. The world is no longer what it was meant to be. History is discontinuous. And it's only in the religion of the Bible that I see a real answer for the fact that all of us have this sense that the world ought to be a certain way. And all of us know that it's not that way. And that's true on any continent, in any era, with any stage of life. This universal sense that the world ought to be one way and it's not. And that's because of creation and fall, because the world we live in is so much less than it was intended to be. Evil is a a privation of the good. We have lost the goodness and the rightness that we were designed to have, and sin and sickness and disease and death, and even the fall of the cosmos itself has, has come about, and that's the world into which we're born. It's fallen. The wine always runs out. And what we're seeing in this passage is that Jesus is the one who can bring back the wine. There's a reason Mary turns to Jesus. She has walked with Jesus his entire life. He, he was the perfect baby, you know. And, and, and she knows that he is the answer. And, and, and so it means listening, learning to listen to Mary uh, in the face of shame in the face of poverty, in the face of exposure, when your entire world, your family is getting ready to crumble like a house of cards in front of all the watching world on the very worst day of your life, when you get the worst news, when your marriage is, 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 is hitting the brakes, when your kids are, are, are a wreck, when your own, you know, mental health is questionable and your physical health is going down the tubes, when spiritually you're realizing you're not where you thought you would be and you're not sure where you are with God, when the wine has run out on the worst day of your life, Mother Mary comes to you speaking words of wisdom, saying, do whatever he tells you to do. It's the only command of the Virgin Mary in all of Scripture is telling her servants in the midst of the fall, in the midst of the pain and the emptiness and the sorrow and the loss and the shame, Jesus is the only one who can rescue us. He is the only one who can make this right. He is the only one who can restore. Do whatever He tells you to do. 
That's what it means to trust Jesus with our lives because he is the one who can bring the wine back. He can bring it back individually in small ways in our lives when, when you actually turn that corner and realize that your marriage is actually starting to get more intimate and more close and you're starting to trust one another more. When you actually see the Holy Spirit begin to work in the heart of, 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 of a very stubborn, strong-willed child to give them a sensitivity to the desires of Jesus, to give them a love for God. When that prayer that you've prayed a million times and given up hope on and even stopped praying suddenly is answered and you realize uh, without expecting it that God has actually heard you, heard your cry and said yes. But more than individually, it's cosmically that Jesus came to restore the wine the Hebrew prophets, we've spoken of this before, spoke of, of the shalom of God. Literally, it's translated peace, but it means so much more than the absence of conflict. The shalom of God is, is the universal webbing together of God and humanity and creation and justice and mercy and love when everything will be made right and, and that voice will speak from the throne and say, behold, I make all things new and God will wipe every tear from your eyes and there will be no more sickness, no more disease, no more death. The old order will be wiped away. The, 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 the apostles spoke uh, of of. of of the renewal of all things. Jesus spoke of the restoration of all things. The Apostle Paul spoke in Romans chapter 8 of how the, the cosmos, the physical world, our fellow creatures are, are groaning, uh, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, waiting for Christ to return because at that point they will be liberated from their bondage to decay. God's not going to destroy the cosmos. He's going to restore the cosmos. When, when the Bible speaks of a, a new heaven and new earth, it's new of a different quality. It's transformed and liberated from its bondage to decay. When Jesus said the meek would inherit the earth, he wasn't promising a burnt cinder, though they would be humble and meek and would accept that with thanks. But that's not the promise. The promise is of shalom, where, where in the, the, the vision of the Hebrew prophets, the, 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 the hills would be so covered with grapevines that, that rivers of wine would be flooding down into the valley below. And Jesus, by turning water into wine, is saying, I am the shalom of God. I am the universal flourishing. I am the one who makes all things new, the resurrection and the life. I am the one who brings the shalom because I am the man of shalom. And for this young family at Cana, this miracle meant very tangibly a freedom and protection from shame, from being humiliated. I want you to go at some point, read through the Psalms when you're under attack and you will find that perhaps the majority of them are all about God delivering us from shame in the face of accusation and attack. And also, God is speaking a word of justice for the poor here because this poor family is given a simply massive amount of wine. It doesn't matter how big this party is. There was no way, even with a bunch of Presbyterians, even if the Episcopalians came over, there's no way they would drink this much wine. It is not physically possible. They would all drown if they tried. They would pass out before they could get there. It's not possible what Jesus is doing. And this is very good wine. 
It specifies this is very good wine. This is not Franzia in a box. This is not Two Buck Chuck from Trader Joe's. This is like Amontillado. This is the really, really, really good stuff. What Jesus is doing in providing this overwhelming quantity is he's doing more than protecting them from immediate shame. He is setting them up with a down payment for a future life of success and prosperity by giving them wine they can sell, addressing the shame of poverty. The wine always runs out. Jesus is the one who can bring the wine back, both individually and ultimately in the coming age on a cosmic level. And that is going to cost Jesus greatly because Jesus doesn't address the symptom. He addresses the underlying condition. I want you to understand, if you go to a physician, and Jesus is the great physician, if you go to a doctor and you say, Dr., I need to talk about something. I've got an intense stabbing, throbbing pain just below my left rib cage. And he then says, okay, well, I will give you some Oxycontin uh, and you won't feel that anymore. Now, what has that doctor just done? What that doctor did in taking the pain away but not addressing the underlying condition is he has just taken you from stage one pancreatic cancer to stage five when he sees you in a month uh, because it's going to kill you. Because the underlying condition is the bigger issue. And in this life, we feel the symptoms of our disconnect from God. We feel all the symptoms of living in a world that is not in relationship with God, that is not reconciled. And we feel it in your family. You feel it in your health. You feel it in your soul. You feel it psychologically. You feel it in every way in the world around us is screaming at us over and over and over again in our pain, in our tears, in our sorrow, in our loss. All of these are symptoms saying there is a bigger problem. And Jesus didn't come to give Oxycontin. He came to cut out the cancer, to actually give us life by reconciling us to God. That's what Jesus came, to give not a treatment, but rather a cure. Did you notice how Jesus got annoyed with his mom? Um, It's not always a sin to get annoyed with your mom. Um, Jesus was sinless. In this case, this is justified mom annoyance because she's come in. She doesn't know what she's asking Jesus to do. She's saying, Jesus, they're out of wine. And what does Jesus say? Why do you bring me into this? My time has not yet come. Okay, that's heavy. Um, Jesus is saying, why do you want me to restore the wine? I haven't yet absorbed the full wrath and anger of God at all of humanity's sin on the cross. That's what he's talking about. Um, He knows that he's being asked to hand out wine, hand out shalom, hand out salvation. And, and, And he's willing to do that. And he does do that at this point. But he realizes he's handing this out on a credit card. And that debt is going to have to be repaid. And he's going to have to repay that, 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 that credit, that debt himself. Because he's giving grace that has not yet been purchased. Mary has no idea what she's asking him to do, and it's going to cost him. For Jesus, it will mean trading cups with us. The, the Hebrew scriptures speak of, of the cup of God's wrath. You see it in Psalm 75, for in the hand of Yahweh there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. We see it again in Jeremiah 25, thus The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath 
and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. It's multiple times in the prophet Isaiah, multiple times in the Psalms, in Obadiah, in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, of of the lost it is written, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of of the Lamb. This is a picture of, of hell, not so much in this instance as eternal separation from God as much as it is the eternal presence of God in, in unmitigated wrath and fury. This is very heavy stuff in the imagery of, of Revelation. This cup of God's wrath that is his righteous and holy anger and opposition to all evil and all injustice, all hatred and cruelty, all infidelity, all betrayal. God's absolute opposition to everything that is evil and broken in us, everything that we have done and everything that we have desired. And there is this cup of wrath to be poured out. And Jesus sees you holding that cup of wrath. And he grabs it and he pries your fingers off of that cup and what he does at the cross is he takes that cup and he drinks it and he drinks it all the way down to the dregs he licks the bowl and leaves no wrath of god left for you if you have jesus and then he takes his own righteousness and credits to you as as saint paul talks about in in second corinthians 5 that 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 god took him who had no sin and made him into sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's, it's the great exchange, according to Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer of the 16th century, where, where what I have plenty of all of my life, I have sinned against God in word, thought, and deed, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 60 seconds every minute. I have not loved God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength, and 16 sixteenths of, of, of my mind for 10 seconds my entire life. I am constantly violating the, the greatest commandment, constantly committing the greatest sin, and all of that sin, all of that injustice, all of that, that iniquity, to use a good biblical word, in me is transferred at the cross to Jesus Christ. And he bears it in my place so that I bear it no more. You bear your sins no more if you have Jesus. And further than that, the righteousness of Jesus in which he always pleased the Father in word, thought, and deed, obeying the Lord from the heart continually. All that he has done has been taken and credited to your account when you believe so that you fed the 5,000, so that you raised Lazarus from the dead, so that you always did what pleased the Father, so that you now clothed in the righteousness of Christ are more than forgiven. You are righteous before God because he has declared you so because you are living out inside the clothes of Jesus. And he loves you and he delights in you. That great exchange Jesus has done in order to give you the cup of blessing and the cup of shalom. He has taken our cup for us and he's done it to show the scandalous grace of God to sinners like us. Here's the story by Isaac Dennison of Babette's Feast. The story is of two elderly and pious Christian sisters in a small village on the remote coast of 19th century Denmark. Their father was a pastor who founded his own pietistic church. With their father now dead and the austere sect in decline, the aging two sisters preside over their dwindling congregation of white-haired believers, a small community by now filled with bitterness over long-ago wrongs. 
And then a rainy June night of 1871, the bell rope of the house was pulled violently three times. The mistresses of the house opened the door to a massive, dark, deadly pale woman who stared at them, took one step forward, and then fell down on the doorstep in a dead swoon. And when the frightened ladies had restored her to life, she sat up. She gave them one more glance from her sunken eyes and all the time, without a word, fumbled in her wet clothes and brought out a letter which she handed to them. It was a letter from a long-lost love explaining that this woman, Babette Herson, is a refugee from counter-revolutionary bloodshed in Paris and recommending her as a housekeeper. And the letter adds, Babette can cook. The sisters cannot afford to take Babette in, but Babette offers to work for them for free. And so Babette serves as their cook for the next 14 years, producing bland meals, split cod, and bread soup, typical of the Puritan nature of the congregation. Her only link to her former life is a lottery ticket that a friend in Paris renews for her every year. And one day, another letter arrives in the mail, and she informs her two mistresses that she has won the lottery for 10,000 francs. They assume, of course, that Babette will soon return to her old life in Paris. The two sisters worry about who's going to take care of them in their frailty. They worry about who's going to take care of the poor in their community now that they will have to fend for themselves. And Babette asks of them just one favor. She asks that she be allowed to cook a proper French meal for the ladies and their congregation. At first, they refuse. But in 14 years, Babette has not once requested anything. She has worked without pay, and so they have to agree. And Babette arranges for her nephew, a merchant, to go to Paris and gather the supplies for the feast. The ingredients are plentiful. They're sumptuous and exotic. Their arrival calls much, causes much discussion among the villagers. As the various never-before-seen ingredients arise and preparations commence, the sisters begin to worry that the meal will become a sin and sensual luxury, if not some form of devilry. In a hasty conference, the sisters and the congregation agree to eat the meal, but to forgo speaking of any pleasure in it and to make no mention of the food during the course of the dinner. But another guest also comes to the dinner a famous General Levenhelm, now married to a member of the Queen's Court, comes as the guest of his aunt, the local lady of the manor, and a member of the old pastor's congregation. He's unaware of the guest's austere plans, and as a man of the world and former attaché in Paris, he is the only person at the table qualified to comment on the meal. General Levenhelm, somewhat suspicious of his wine, takes a sip of it, Startled, he raises the glass first to his nose, then to his eyes, and he sits down bewildered. This is very strange. Amontillado, and the finest Amontillado that I have ever tasted. At a moment, in order to test his senses, he took a small spoonful of his soup, took a second spoonful, and laid down his spoon. This is exceedingly strange. For surely I am eating turtle soup. And what a turtle soup. He was seized by a queer kind of panic and emptied his glass. As a new dish was served, he was silenced. Incredible, he told himself. This is Blini Dimidov. 
comparing it to a meal he enjoyed years earlier at the famous Café Anglais in Paris. He, he looked round at his fellow diners and they were all quietly eating their blini dimidoff without any sign of either surprise or approval as if they had been doing so every single day for 30 years. Finally, as no one was standing up to offer a toast, the general stood to offer his speech. Mercy and truth, my friends, have met together. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. Man, my friends, is frail and foolish. We have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe, but in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. For this reason, we tremble. We tremble before making our choice in life and after having made it again, tremble in fear of having chosen wrong. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Grace, brothers, makes no conditions. Grace takes us all to its bosom and proclaims general amnesty. See, that which we have chosen is given us, and that which we have refused is also at the same time granted to us. I, that which we have rejected, is poured upon us abundantly, for mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. Of what happened later in that evening, nothing definite can here be stated. None of the guests later on had any clear remembrance of it. They only knew that the rooms had been filled with a heavenly light, as if a number of small halos had blended into one glorious radiance. Taciturn old people received the gift of tongues. Ears that for years had been almost deaf were opened to it. Time itself had merged into eternity, Long after midnight, the windows of the house shone like gold and golden song flowed out in the winter air. The two old women who had once slandered each other now in their hearts went back a long way past the evil period in which they had been stuck to those days in their early girlhood when together they had been preparing for confirmation and hand in hand had filled the roads around Berlevag with singing. Old wrongs are forgotten and ancient loves are rekindled. And after the two elderly mistresses finally locked the door, they remembered Babette. A little wave of tenderness and pity swept through them. Babette alone had no share in the bliss of the evening. And so they went into the kitchen, and one of them said to Babette, It was quite a nice dinner, Babette. Their hearts suddenly filled with gratitude, and they realized that none of their guests had said a single word about the food. Babette sat on the chopping block, surrounded by more greasy black pans than her mistresses had ever seen in their life. She was as white and as deadly exhausted as on the night when she first appeared and had fainted on their doorstep. And after a long time, she looked straight at them and said, I was once cook at the Café Anglais. The mistress said again, they all thought that it was a nice dinner. And when Babette did not answer a word, she added, But we will all remember this evening when you have gone back to Paris, Babette. I am not going back to Paris, she said. You're not going back to Paris? And how would I pay to go back to Paris, madame? I have no money. 
No money, the sisters cried with one mouth, no. But the 10,000 francs, the 10,000 francs have been spent, mesdames. The sisters sat down for a full minute. They could not speak. But 10,000 francs? What will you, madame, Babette said with great dignity. A dinner for 12 at the Café Anglais would cost 10,000 francs. And from that point onward, she had bound herself to these two elderly women to love them and serve them, to cook for them and care for him all the days of their lives. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for you. He has spent everything in order to purchase for you not just the forgiveness of sins in this life, but the recovery of shalom in the coming age. He has given up everything at the cost of his life to build an extravagant feast because he loves you completely and he never ever asks to be repaid. He asks only that you receive his love, that we let it shape us. The hospitality of Christ Jesus, the broken and bruised to the beggar, to the lame, and to bitter church people like some of us. This is Jesus who at great cost brings back the wine so that he might be master of the feast, Jesus, our shalom, Jesus, the wine of God, who brings back everything that was lost. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, in you, mercy and truth have met together and righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. We thank you, Jesus, for your salvation. We thank you for the grace that you give us for the promise that you give us, for the hope that you give us, that you, Lord, will bring back what has been lost. We consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, this bread and this cup, that you would minister the gospel to us, that you would wash our feet so that we might turn around and wash one another's. We consecrate these elements to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.